It's the Skinny Podcast, only on Local12.com. Now, here's Richard Skinner, joined by Chad Brendel of BearcatJournal.com and Rick Roaring from MusketeerReport.com. Welcome into the Skinny Podcast, presented by Joseph Infinity of Cincinnati. Jed Demusi once again pinch hitting for Richard Skinner. We're joined by Chad Brendel, BearcatJournal.com, Rick Broering, MusketeerReport.com. Gentlemen, thanks for letting me pinch hit once again for Mr. Richard Skinner. We we appreciate having you in, actually. It's refreshing. We get to speak. Uh, let's start with UC this week, an, an eventful week, a two-win week. Started at home against USF, an 82-74 win. It's notable because it was the first time in his coaching career that Mick Cronin has been tossed from a game. He was ejected, and he said a four-letter word, but that word was? Well, or, or what? <laughs> it, what? It wasn't the four-letter word you may have thought of, but... He gets ejected, and, and all of a sudden, the, the team is without their head coach for the first time ever. And they, they kind of went into a bit of a lull after he was shown the door, but managed to come back and get a game that they had to have. Yeah, I mean, it, South Florida's a lot better. Brian Gregory's done a good job in two years reconstructing that roster. LaQuincy Rideau is really good. Their tank of a point guard looks like a running back. Um, but you can't lose to South Florida at home. Um, especially not after you lost to ECU on the road. That's you're still, you know, early in conference play. We're still in January. You can't have those two marks on your conference resume as you go into you know these next twelve games are the toughest twelve games uh, of the, the the season in terms of you know uh, pretty much everybody is right inside the top one twenty in Kempom. So uh, they had to get that one. They had to bounce back. They they showed some resiliency. Showed some toughness to get it sorted out after South Florida made a run, um, get the lead built back up a little bit, and then finish out the win. So, uh, you know, this team is learning and growing, and and pieces are stepping up, and, and um, they're becoming kind of Jaron and the Bearcats, which we thought we would see. Uh, we've seen more of it lately than, than we saw earlier in the year, but um, – his ability to find guys, especially late in games, teams are sending the house at him and, and he's dishing out for open threes and finding guys for dunks and then getting to the free throw line at a ridiculous rate. Um, I mean, he's he's pretty much fouling guys out by himself right now. And that's, you know, that that's what you want from him. And I think the nice part is, is the way the season has gone is it is Jaron and the Bearcats. It's not just Jaron because he is finding guys that can hit shots. Justin Jennifer had a couple big ones against Wichita State on Sunday or on Saturday down the stretch in that game. It's not just if Jaron doesn't have it. I guess what's your opinion on that? If Jaron doesn't have it, can this team figure out a way to win? I mean, they still are going to need him facilitating, but they've got enough talent if he's not scoring to still grind out wins in this league. Keith Williams has been very consistent as a double-digit scorer. Um, Justin Jennifer has been the type of shooter that I said they needed him to be uh, when the season started for this team to be successful. And then, unfortunately, you haven't gotten them – uh, much in the same game, but it seems like they alternate games where Trayvon Scott and Nizier Brooks are effective. Um, and they both have pretty good games um, 
on the road against Wichita State with double-digit rebounds each. But, um, yeah, they've got enough firepower that, you know, as long as Jaron is still doing what he's been doing, getting to the free-throw line, uh, he didn't really shoot that well against Wichita State, honestly. Um, but he was still able to generate 18 points and create enough for others that they got to win. Okay, I'm still kind of reeling, I guess, from Brian Gregory being good for USF. I guess I didn't say he was necessarily a good coach. I just said he's restocked the roster well. I feel like he's good enough to sort of... He's probably good enough for South Florida. Good enough for a while. The Brian Gregory story. We said that last week. That is exactly what he is. He's good enough for the next five to ten years, depending on how bad your program was before he got there. And they were really bad. So, so he's probably on a decade-long stint. <laughs> and the good news is he lot, he left a lot in the cupboard for Josh Passner at Georgia Tech, who scored 16 points in the first half against Louisville and were down 30 going to halftime. So. Josh Passner had 16 in that game? <laughs> no, for, he's the new Big so, night for him. He was, used to be a walk-on. He's improved his game quite a bit over the years. New coach at Georgia Tech. Layoff, Golly guys. gee, guys, we really need to do a better job putting the ball in the basket. He's he. I don't think he uses any product in that hair, Passner. He doesn't use any foul language. No, of course, of course that that too. So he that's the one thing he and John wouldn't have in common. Um, <laughs> let's go to Xavier. Just one game this week at Villanova. It's been a house of horrors for this team. I think they said during the broadcast that it or Villanova has won what thirty two of the last thirty five in the series. Something ridiculous to that effect. But it was maybe a little more competitive down the stretch for a while there than than maybe some people anticipated, considering Xavier has taken better teams to Villanova and, frankly, have played better Villanova teams. But they were able to figure out a way to be competitive in this game, maybe a little longer than they have in the past. Yeah, this wasn't the they have no chance. It's a mental hurdle that they can't overcome, and they're getting boat raced no matter what. This was Villanova was the better team, and Xavier didn't do enough things to overcome that. It it looked like a normal game for them, and um, they had some chances in the second half. And when I was watching it in real time, it kind of felt like, oh, Villanova got a couple things to go their way. They had two threes that kind of bounced up off the rim and straight up and then fell through. They had a couple guys get called for fouls where it looked kind of iffy on three-point shots and then went back and watched it all. I was like, man, Xavier really cost themselves. I mean, they gambled in some situations that they don't normally gamble in. And yeah, those threes may have popped up off the rim and then went through, but it's like, when you've got the guys Villanova has shooting those threes and you give them open looks where they have confidence stepping into it, they're going to rattle them in. Like they, they, that is what they do. So I thought, I thought Xavier could have played better and could have made that an even more interesting game had they cleaned some things up in the second half. I know this will get taken wrong, but it's not the Here intention. This no. will be good. It's not the intention, guys. Go ahead, say whatever you want now. <laughs> I thought in the first half, Villanova had three or four shots that looked like they were down and out. You know, rattled in and bounced out. Yeah. That in past years, all of those shots went in, where Xavier just faced a tidal wave, and by the ten minute mark, you know, after with ten minutes gone in the game, it was like thirty four to six. I thought X did a really good job. Bridges could not miss last year at Cintas. Right. And I thought Xavier did a really good job of of allowing themselves to play off of that. Villanova wasn't as they got hot, and in the second half, those things bounced their way, which is you know, 15 threes is a ton of threes. They, they obviously had some things bounce their way, and I'm not that's why I say I don't want it taken wrong. That, right, like you know, I just thought early in those first two or three segments, they had some stuff go in and out that in the past had fallen, and instead of Xavier being able to hang around in a six, seven point game, especially 
at Villanova, it was a 25-point game before you could blink because everything they threw at the rim fell. And I, it's a credit to Xavier that they were able to to take advantage of that and battle to put themselves in a position in the second half to be around and make a game of it. Yeah, and I just think you hear Travis Steele, and the one thing he says every game, if we take care of the ball, we're going to have a chance. And you're right. In that second half, it looked like the one alley-oop that they attempted to pull off, and then that led to an easy bucket for Villanova. There were just some moments there, I think, to your point, where they they almost kind of felt – I don't know if this is the right way to say it, but it looked to me like they felt maybe too good about themselves and didn't and kind of got away from the game plan. Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, like Quentin Gooden had a really bad stretch there. That alley oop, he was the one who threw that and right. turnover that led to a run out. Right before that, though, he had back to back plays where he had given up open threes because he gambled, and a few possessions before that. He had had another possession where he gambled and gave up a three. So Quentin, I thought, played pretty well offensively. He did more of what people have been wanting to see from him, what the coaches have been wanting to see from him, which is be more of a prober of the defense and make them guard your athleticism and you getting into the lane and making plays as opposed to settling for tough jumpers or trying to do too much as a scorer. Defensively, though, I don't know if that was him trying to do too much because he's at Villanova or if it was him being a little rusty and coming back and just kind of out of sync. I don't know what it was. But, yeah, I thought they they had some mistakes that just, like, they hadn't been making recently that it was like, man, if they, they kind of tighten things up and play more like they had been, they might be even more so in that game. Let's go back to UC and sort of the narrative that dominated the week in, in the conference was the officials as it relates to throwing coaches out of games. Mick Cronin gets tossed the next night. It's a double toss feature for Tulsa and UConn as, as Hurley and Frank Haith both get run. Hurley, after the game, was saying, I know Fra- I've known Frank Haith for close to 20 years. I didn't have a problem with him. The rest. He's trying to shake his hand. <laughs> Pat Adams acted like he was at, like working riot control. Hurley extends his hand, walks over to Frank Haith, and Pat Adams is trying to hold him back like they're gonna like they've got their hands up, like they're gonna fight. Give me a break. The officials in this league are a joke. They're so bad. They're are, so bad. Are they demonstrably worse than any other league's officials? Well, I mean, they're the seventh best league, so theory would have it. They're the seventh <laughs> best level of officials, right? It, it, Mick Cronin, he would never admit this, but he had it had to bring a smile to his face that what transpired the night after he basically said these officials are trying to make it about themselves and they're and they could have cost paraphrasing he basically said they could have cost my team a game yeah and and that's what they're There's concerned no paraphrasing. with that's what he said for for it to for it to then manifest itself. 24 hours later where they tossed two coaches for basically no reason that had to make him smile. Uh, Yeah, I'm sure it did. I'm sure it did. I mean, it's vindication. Basically you, you called them out and then they went out and they showed their backside the next night. When's the last, do you ever remember seeing both coaches ejected in a game before where there there wasn't like a significant event on one incident? Yeah. Like the first technical, like, I kind of get it. I don't necessarily agree with it, but I kind of get it. Like telling them both, quit yapping at each other. Shut up. Let's get on with the game. To escalate it from there. And both times, both games, it's a secondary official that came running in, wasn't really involved with anything, and rings up the ejection. Give me a break. Well, I mean, that's, that's Pat Adams. Well, but but Adams was the primary. Oh, okay. He's the one that teed up 
Hurley and, and Haith and is standing in between them. And like I said, then he's he's acting like he's like breaking up a riot. Yeah. And the second guy comes running in from the backside and ejects both of them. It's just stupid. And, and in that Wichita State game, Adams was almost the, the third official yeah. that got to Greg Marshall and ended up and giving then, him a tee. Yeah. And, and that's a game, too, as we talked about Sunday night on the Sports Authority, where if what had happened earlier in the week hadn't have happened, Greg Marshall probably gets a technical earlier in that He was that trying game. to get a technical for 35 minutes. Uh, taking, I mean, his jacket was off the first two minutes of that game. I mean, well, he was making this a is, scene. This is also a league where Kelvin Sampson, a week and a half ago, was given a tee for taking off his tie. He takes off his tie every game. Like, he, that's his jacket throw. He looks better without a tie. He, t- he takes off his tie. They gave him a tee for taking off his tie. I think most fat neck guys look better without ties. <laughs> like, I do. You do. Absolutely. Agreed? Yeah. Fat yeah. neck guys look I'm better terrible without ties. terrible tie. Yeah. I think he realized. I think he, he may have. He may catch a glimpse of himself, like, in the suite and see him be like, oh, this is bad. Yeah. Look like, for he me. does it. Go. He does it to look official going in so he doesn't yeah. look like a slob. But then <laughs> he doesn't want to be like Huggins. He's just looking for one, like, the first thing that really makes him yeah, mad. He's like, but off. I'm going to be on TV the rest of the day. So, like, I want to make sure I look better. Listen, here's the thing. If you're a fat coach and you're not sweating through your shirt, you're ahead of the game. Bruce Pearl. I mean, goodness, he was he was yeah. sweating like crazy. And do we even consider Bruce Pearl on like fat by coach standards. Like, I don't even know if he's a fat coach. He's he's a little he's a little beefy. Yeah, yeah he's, beefy, he's yeah, low beefy. key thick. <laughs> low key thick. Also, for coach standards, also, I mean, he's a fat guy. But. They they said Bruce Bruce Pearl was was wearing a mic in in the game against Kentucky, which we'll get to in a minute. And and nobody made the joke that Bruce Pearl was wearing a wire. Nobody thought. No. <laughs> nobody went there. Just me. Well, well played, I'm, the, I'm the only well one out that, there. Making that's going to that get joke. buried on the skinny podcast. Thirteen <laughs> minutes in and never heard by most of the country, and that's a shame. Rick, what do you make just sort of from your perspective on this AAC official? Is it is are these officials in particular more egregious than they are across the country, or is this just par for the course? No, I mean I think college officials aren't very good. Period. Like I think there's a lot of issues with them when you watch the nba game it's a far superior product and a lot of that has to do with the way the rules work and also the way the officials call the game but that being said as much as the officials are i think chad's right that officials are caught up in making it about themselves and being the spectacle when they're on national television or sometimes in the aac maybe not the coaches are doing the same exact thing like coach your team not everything needs to be about you and the officials and you arguing every single call and everything's not the officials costing your kids the game. Like worry about fixing all the issues that your team has because like, and I'm not saying this for any specific program. I'm just saying across the board from college or NBA all the way down to grade school, we've got this like serious epidemic in our country of yelling at refs. It's, it's honestly hard to, I went to a high school game the other night to scout a kid and it was hard to sit there with no rooting interest and just listen to parents scream and coaches scream and players scream the entire game on every single possession at the refs. It's like at some point you're just, we're just gonna have to accept the fact that they're humans too. And they don't get hundred percent of them. Right. And, it's all LeBron's fault. Okay. <laughs> He's, he kind of started the talk to the refs all the time thing. What? <laughs> Wait a second. What I'm are kidding. you doing? Wait here? a second. <laughs> I'm kidding. He started it. Oh, that's perhaps the hottest take considering he didn't enter the enter the basketball world until like 2006. Con- he's constantly Charles talking Barkley to the officials. Never talked to officials uh, ever. I mean, 
Come on. What are we doing here? I, I will say, though, that, that you know, every Friday night I'm in at least two different high school basketball gym shooting games. And it's hard, it's hard in the moment to think, oh, my gosh, has it always been this bad? But it does kind of feel that way, that, that it, it, there is sort of this underlying it's social media and uh, is, I mean is it is it as bad is it as bad as it was 10 years ago or is it worse I I personally do think it's getting worse um, I think our the entire climate of our country with I mean I don't want to get into politics but just everything is polarized from sports right. to what music you like to whatever it just seems like everything's kind of an argument and you're on one side or the other and everything's very hotly contested so um, I, I, I when I was a student, I said some vile things to an official. Yeah. Like, I mean, that, that happened, too. It's not like it's a new thing to yell at ref. Vile. I, think it's, I think it's a little different, though, when you're talking about students and adults. I mean, like I, I, I literally when I started doing high school games, calling high school games, I searched searched the guy out and apologized later, like 10 go. years later. Because I felt bad. And that's the last apology you ever gave to anyone <laughs> yeah. 10 years ago. <laughs> let's let's move on to uh, that Xavier game against Nova and sort of Zach Hankins. 12 points in the first half. He disappeared in the second half. Uh, I think a lot of fans were saying, you know, he, he had some easy buckets in the first half. Why couldn't he have gotten those easy buckets in the second half? Where did he go? Yeah, so I think – one of the things we also have to remember here, and I'm not saying anything happened, but we also don't know everything that's going on between like coaches and players. And like, if he's proving a lesson, like maybe for weeks, he's been telling him you need to rebound better, or be tougher on the glass. And he gave up two offensive rebounds. And that's the reason he sat in the rest of the game. Or maybe he had a bad attitude when he took him out. So like, we don't always know those things. So there could right. be a little more here than just the fact that it wasn't a good matchup. But what happened was in the first half, Villanova just completely blitzed Xavier by using ball screens. They basically did nothing else. They ran a simple ball screen, and a lot of times the big man either set the screen and quickly dove to the rim, or he didn't even set it. He just slipped it immediately and dove to the rim. And with four other shooters along the floor, Villanova spaces out your help defense, and no one's under the rim to protect that. And Xavier, trying to hard hedge the ball screens with two bigs in the game, weren't able to defend them at all. So in the second half, Travis Steele came back out with the two big men to start that first war. They're getting blitzed on ball screens again. He at that point decides we have to go to a smaller lineup for one. And two, we have to switch all screens one through five, meaning the center, when he goes up and sets a screen for the point guard, the center is now going to guard the point guard. Zach Hankins can't do that. Like, it's just the difference between a 6'11 guy and a 6'7 guy. That's all it is. I mean, Tyreek Jones can move better. He has a lower center of gravity. He's more athletic. That's why he was the better matchup in that point. And when you go, well, but you're giving up too much on offense. Well, not really. Xavier's offense was more efficient in the second half. Yes, Zach Hankins had six baskets. Two of them were pretty nice. One was a, a reverse finish he made after a dump off, and the other was he caught it on the block with Phil Booth on him, who's a point guard. He had a mismatch, but he caught it and made a nice little hook move in the lane. Those were really the only two baskets he created himself. The others were all guards making drives and creating and getting help defense sucked up and then finding him for an easy dunk, which really didn't matter who was on the other side of that drop-off. could have been Tyreek Jones, could have been Elias Harden, could have been Dontarius James, who doesn't play at all. They would have been able to dunk that or lay it in. So I don't think they really felt like they were giving up that much offensively. And defensively, I felt like they didn't have a chance if they didn't start switching screens. And I totally agree with that. Watching the film back, the first half, they had no chance defending. They scored okay on the offensive end, but defensively, they had no shot. Second, second half, they gave themselves a chance. They had some mistakes along the way, just gambling and other things, but they gave themselves a chance, and they weren't just giving up an easy dunk or an open three on every single ball screen that Villanova ran. Is that why Villanova has been so good 
recently is because they make you take someone who can be a factor, you take someone who can score 12 points in the first half out of a game because of the way they've constructed their, their roster? Well, I think it's because they have a system that it, it makes sense analytically. They just shoot a ton of threes, and they they recruit to that roster. They have a lot of skilled guys who can make those shots, so they always put you in a situation where it's kind of tough. You have to choose what you're going to do against them, and the way Xavier likes to defend ball screens, with the, which is hard hedging with a big man and recovering back, isn't conducive to that style that Villanova is going to play. So for Xavier specifically, yes, that would, that's what makes them very difficult. But the other factor is Villanova's had really good players over the last yeah. five to ten years, and that's why they've been really good too. But I do think Jay's system is one that really works. It makes sense because of the numbers, and it also makes sense because it's just it's hard to guard. It's a good style to win with, whether you're in the tournament, whether you're in the regular season. It's, it's just very consistent and successful. Okay, looking ahead to UC this week, they are – Home on Thursday against Tulsa, Sunday on the road at Temple. Uh, I'm assuming that Tulsa is one you've got to have, and Temple is going to be a toss-up unless Fran Dunphy throws another water bottle on the court. It's always tough to go in at the the guy that the AAC Coach of the Year year award is named (laughs) for. Um, and I wouldn't be shocked, actually, if after this year it does become the Fran Dunphy American Athletic Conference Coach of the Year. they, yeah, Tulsa, you would think, you know, you go into their place, you get taken to overtime, you kind of escape with a win, with the way everything went down, with Kane Broom scoring the last 14 points to kind of bail you out. Um, you would think you come in focused and, and playing well at home and understand that's a game that we have to get. Uh, Temple, they never play well in Philly. And that's gone. Temple's had some good teams. They didn't play well. Temple's had some bad teams. They didn't play well. Uh, so I'm not expecting them to play well. Temple's got some talent. Uh, three really good guys on the perimeter. And then uh, Ernest of Flackpee uh, in the post that's given him problems. Since old man of Flackpee's boy? Old man of Flackpee's boy. Okay. I just call him. He's tough. I just call him Aflac. <laughs> there you go. Um, and it, it, I would be, I, I will be sitting here Sunday night very impressed if they are 2-0. Uh, this week, but for all the 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 concern and worry about this team and everything we've talked about the last five games, we're sixteen and three. Yeah, is there a lot of concern and worry about this team from the fan base right now? I'm genuinely asking. I'm not. I don't know. I, I think just in that there have been some stretches where it's. It, I I titled the BCJ podcast last week the Bizarro Bearcats because they were winning with offense and the defense was looking yeah, particularly terrible and they were giving up. Told you November 7th. 50%. Offense isn't this team's problem. He was right. But he um, wanted to listen. To <laughs> but they were giving up 45% from three and it, it wasn't like panic, but there was definitely like, what are we watching? Yeah. Because this is not familiar. Wichita State, that looked like a UC road win specifically mm-hmm. hold hold a team that they had just beaten Central Florida they're not having a really good year um, they replaced their top seven of their top eight guys the only guy they really brought back was Marcus McDuffie um, but that looked like a UC win on the road grind you down uh, beat you up and then you know kind of get the job done late in the game so I don't think there's concern as much as there's just we're not used to seeing what we've seen. Now, that was also a stretch where they had three games in six days following the East Carolina loss, which was a disaster, but three games in six days, and then 
six of the guys on the team got the flu. So they weren't in the gym fixing what had been going wrong. It was more just like, let's get through these six days and, you know, kind of reconvene and figure it out from there. They got through those six days, three and oh, two of them went to overtime, but you get the win, you move on. Um, so no, I don't think there's, you know, like legit concern. I think it's just more this team at times is not something, you know, that, that we're used to. I just think if you if you tell everyone before the season started, hey, they're in position for a seven or eight seed midway through the season, which I think they definitely are. And if they go on a run, maybe even better than that the yeah. rest of the way. But like right now, I think they're still at the point where you'd say they're probably overachieving for what expectations should have been coming in. I, I don't think I would have had them at sixteen and three. No, they had or, a bad loss, but yeah, but I mean that happened. That, yeah, that's what happens when your team isn't as good as it's been in the past. Like right. slip up on the road, and they're still you know it, it, we're going to learn a lot as these next couple weeks go by because the games do get harder, and we've talked about the American still isn't good, but it's considerably better. Um, there's ten teams right around the top one twenty uh, in Ken Palm, and that's a lot better from where we've seen where you've got you know three or four teams five teams around the top 100 and then a bunch of teams that are two 225 right um they've got their last 12 games are all against teams in the top 120 in ken palm right now so inconsistency is going to to bite them if they don't fix some of that some of the problems that they've had but still 16 and 3 like (laughs) you're doing all right considering what you lost and you know it I said it earlier in the year. I still, I, I think this so far has been Mick's best coaching job. I, I would totally agree with that. Completely in line for the Fran Dunphy Coach of the Year award. I would <laughs> he think. should be. Yeah. I mean, they're top forty and inside the top forty in offense. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with this is his best coaching job since he's been there. What did you think coming into the year? They would with without Gary, Kyle, and Jake outside eighty, easily like like pushing back towards a hundred. Yeah, I mean, the only thing is you had Jaron. So uh, I figured a lot of they were honestly, I thought they would draw more fouls than they have. They're starting to do it more now that he's they were more efficient earlier in the year scoring without grinding out fouls and stuff than I I thought they'd be more this way early on. So, um, no, I mean, I think Mick has done an excellent job this year. Okay, Xavier's week ahead kind of mirrors UC's where you have a game that man, you really got to kind of win this one and then a game where it's like, okay, it's a toss up. Um, and maybe it's trending towards loss the way Marquette is playing, but they're at home against Providence on Wednesday, and then they host Marquette on Saturday. Got to have that Providence game, right? Yeah, it's huge. And I think the good thing is Alpha Diallo is tough, but Xavier has three, four guys that are capable of kind of matching up with him, and you can switch everything, and you don't feel bad if different guys are on him. So Xavier is a team that's kind of equipped to guard an Alpha Diallo-type player, so I think that's got to give them some confidence. But, yeah, you've got to win that Providence game or – you're going to not feel very good about the way things have gone here over this last stretch because it feels like they've made progress over the last month or two or however long that stretch is. But you lose a game like Providence at home, and you're like, well, how much progress have you really made? You win that one like you're supposed to, and it's like, okay, this is, they've kind of got roll, things rolling. Yeah. Yeah. What the hell happened to Providence? I thought they were supposed to be pretty good this year. I thought they were going to be the second-best team in the conference. What the hell happened? That's uh, a tough call. I mean, they were granted, we were expecting them to rely on some freshmen that – and when you have freshmen, you're going to be inconsistent. But the other guys just have not panned out. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's, an, it's an interesting case study because I don't really have a great explanation for why they're <laughs> not better. It seems like their talent would suggest they're better than they are. And 
Is this setting up for another Ed Cooley rips his pants Big East tournament run? It wouldn't surprise me because <laughs> because I do think talent wise they're plenty good enough in this conference, which isn't top heavy at all. Like there aren't a bunch of teams that are clearly better right, than them this right. year. They could they could be the team that wins it. I w- that wouldn't surprise me at all. And Ed Cooley has proven like. I don't know what you think of him, whether he's a good coach or not, but he's proven he makes runs at that time of the year more right. often than not. So they they can beat Woj, right? Yes. What, what, he's home. never going to say no to that, regardless of the team you're talking about. No, I mean, uh, the, 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 honestly, the game at Marquette played out had it not been so bad for like that seven or ten minute stretch in the first half. Yeah, that game played out way better for Xavier than I would have expected. And granted, maybe that's because Marquette had a bit of a lead and they relaxed because they as they tend to do. Uh, but I think it, if you get them to miss a few shots. At Centaur Center, Xavier's, Xavier's got matchups in that game they can exploit, and that could be a really interesting one. Now, Howard's beat up still, isn't he? I mean, he's back. I mean, he but... came back and scored like 23 the other day, so I don't know how beat up he really is. But, yeah, he was. He missed a game at least. So um, They're due a little bad karma after that Creighton game. You would think. <laughs> you would I don't think. know if it's going to happen against Xavier. Yeah, I don't know if Xavier's going to be in position to uh, right. have karma matter, but I, I definitely think Marquette is favored to win that game by, you know, eight points probably. But but uh, but it's Taking not the point. a question. Yeah, I would too. I think Xavier got a chance to stay in it. Okay. Moving on to Northern Kentucky. The good news is that NKU was able to take care of business on the road at Cleveland State and Youngstown State. The bad news is it doesn't seem like John Brandon is consulting NFL Blitz anymore for his uh, inbounds <laughs> plays. But no, NKU going on the road against two teams that were severely overmatched. I want to see teams do that like in the half court, like bring the ball across <laughs> half court. <laughs> And, and line stop. up. Yeah. <laughs> Refs are calling I, I, I false starts. I don't know how that's going to work. I'll be honest. I feel like that's going to be a little tougher to get away or with. Or like, like as the guy's coming up, like you, you inbound it, everybody goes to half court, gets set, he's coming up, maybe he gets like five feet from, and he yells like hike, and they go. Doesn't doesn't the other team just play a zone at that point? Like just don't guard you? I mean, just, we've got I mean, it. they play zone in the NFL, and they still... <laughs> Oh, you know what? A fair point. <laughs> That's on me. I don't know what I was thinking. Uh, it's. I think it's got to be tough when you play at home, the type of environment that you had against Wright State. Yeah. You get that type of emotional win, and then you go to Cleveland State, and it's basically six people. Friends and family. They listed, Not even that. They listed 800. There's, there's no chance. No way. I watched That included game, concession no workers. And, and 800 in a big arena like that does not look good. I mean, that looks like nobody to begin with. But there's zero. I mean, there's no way they had 400. No. There's absolutely no way. And you may say, oh, they they should go on the road and beat Cleveland State. They should go on the road and beat Youngstown State. And they should. But to, to go from that type of game, that type of environment, to this one, I mean, that's got to affect well, you. And they're now dealing with the same thing UC is dealing with in the American, that every time they go on the road, everyone in the conference is like, that's the team. We're yeah. bringing our A game. And you're NKU, you're like, oh, we just got past our rival. Okay, there's 80 people here. This is a Saturday afternoon game, whatever, like, or, you know, a Thursday night game. And it doesn't feel like a big deal. But to that other team, they're coming out of the locker room fired up, ready to take off the conference champs. So it's just like a thing. You've got to match that intensity. And when you're in those types of situations, Not it's like, easy. yeah, it was like when Xavier was back in the A10, you go to St. Bonaventure in Olea, New York, and there's no one at the high school gym that you're ready to play at. And you get popped by a team ranked 250th in Ken Palm. It's like those games are tough to get up for. And I know John Brandon's not going to be happy about his defensive effort, but the way his team came locked in in terms of doing what they want to do on the offensive end with their game plan, they executed perfectly and absolutely just lit Cleveland State up on Thursday night. And then that kind of carried over into Saturday where, again, I didn't think the defense was as good as he'd want it to be. But offensively, I mean, 
they're sharing the ball at such an elite level. It looked like Youngstown State was just chasing the ball around in a circle all game, while NKU is just ping-ponging around and then hitting threes on them. Has Tyler Sharp emerged as the Rick's def- favorite player? definitive second option? No, I think it's clearly Drew McDonald or Jalen Tate one and two, and then whoever's not one, the other one's two. And then Sharp, the great thing about him this year is he's he's come when he's needed, and he's made big shots when he's needed, but he's not forcing the issue at all. He's been very unselfish, more so than I thought he was last year, where he's willing to just say, hey, it's his night, his night, and his night, and I'm just going to have four assists and a couple rebounds and play tough defense. I really like the way, really this whole team is accepting of their roles. I think John Brandon and his, his staff, the culture they've created in terms of sharing the ball and buying into roles and understanding what you're supposed to do is uh, that is the, the the best thing they've done so far with this team. So you're saying it was probably a good move that some guys that maybe didn't buy into that culture were uh, moved on from, and some guys that did buy into that culture were added to yeah. the roster. Well, I mean, I think that's it. Just it happened naturally, right? Like those guys lost their position last year, the starting spot, or they didn't want to accept the role that was put forth for them. And NK was like, "That's fine." I mean, you're a nice player. We'd like to have you back, but that's fine. We'll help you find somewhere else to go. We'll bring in someone else that will buy in. You're absolutely right. It's They've done a great job of cultivating it, that. It's, it's one of the many things that has happened at NKU where I would think you would just, you're just wide-eyed thinking five, six, seven years ago, NKU is begging for that type of player to stay and doing everything they can to make that player feel better about a situation where now it's like, hey, th- these this is how we're going to play, and if you want to fit into it, fine. If not, we don't see ya. Yeah, we'll and, help you, but... And I think that's like that. That's sort of a page out of the Mick Cronin book in the sense of you can't make concessions when it comes to culture. You know, and then like that's why UC is always tough and always defends because he doesn't accept anything less. I mean, even in cases where, in my opinion, it's hurt them, like Kane Broom, in my opinion, is the best example of that. But Mick will never make a concession for what he believes is the identity of their program. And I think, in, in it may not be the same exact thing, but in the same way, John's not making any concessions in terms of their culture and how they're going to play with one another and and be unselfish. And John has been in some big time situations before he got there. Like mm-hmm. this isn't a guy that came up through the ranks like at smaller places right you know he's he's been in some big time spots been in some big time programs and understands we're gonna do it our way put it this way he's been in rooms where people are asking for cash you know what i mean like it's not like he's small potatoes when it comes to recruiting he understands that concessions are made at the highest levels and and what you can and can't accept and i think they've done a great job of even at nku where like you said a lot of times you'd think you'd be begging for players to stay or or end up there they're willing to say, we want you, but only if you are you fit our program. Speaking of guys who have been in rooms where people are asking for cash, Bruce Pearl hosting. <laughs> <laughs> okay, second year on this podcast. I guess, Man, I, you're going to get skinny fired. I guess, I guess that's a little unfair because Bruce Pearl did offer Aaron Kraft money at a barbecue, which wasn't in a room per se. Yeah, it was sort it was of outdoors. outside yeah, setting. So not really a room. But uh, Kentucky going on the road at Auburn. Uh, I watched that game from start to finish and was entertained from from soup to nuts. I mean, that game was unbelievable. Relax, Rothstein. That game, that game was incredible. From I thought it was fantastic basketball from start to finish for a guy who doesn't get into the X's and O's as as much. I just thought it was incredibly entertaining and a game that I think Kentucky fans, they've, they've had some, some bad losses this year and they've had some, some high highs and this is one of them. 
Yeah, I mean, to me, that's the most fun form of basketball. When guys are running up and down the court, reading and reacting and making plays, and uh, you're not getting the slow down, grinded out, every possession's micromanaged. That That's basketball to me at, at its finest. And this UK team thrives in that situation. We saw it when they played North Carolina. We saw it in this Auburn game. You let them get up and down and let their playmakers' instincts take over and their athleticism be more impactful on the game, they're really hard to deal with. And Auburn's that type of team that they're not going to change who they are for anybody else. So that's that's not a good matchup for them. Auburn will beat a lot of teams this year and a lot of good ones. And in the tournament, I think they're as dangerous as anyone, but they do not want to run into this Kentucky team in the postseason. Although... Fair to be concerned a little bit. Auburn has lost their top four games. Yeah. A little bit concerned with that style being so wide open and freewheeling and not very all that disciplined, how that handles against other teams that are really good. So far, it's gotten them in trouble, and they've lost their best four games. Do you want to play Auburn in the postseason? No, I didn't no, say I didn't I did. I think so. <laughs> yeah. I'm just pointing. I mean, I'm just, it's a val- something valid about them to, to think about. Yeah. When you're filling out your bracket. How deep do you want them to go when they've lost all four of their best their top games? Okay, with Kentucky as it relates to them, when you go on a when you go on the road and get a win like this, and you have the, and you and you have that type of confidence, I think UK fans have the expectation that this is a Final Four team every year, regardless of who we have. Is this maybe a turning point where yes, we beat North Carolina, but we've also lost to Seton Hall. We we go on the road and road and we lose to Alabama to start SEC play. That hasn't happened too often in the in the Calipari era. Is this just maybe is this a turning point or is this just another part of this season that's been sort of uneven? I think the problem when we try to evaluate Kentucky is we ter- we're too often looking for that turning point, right? Like every loss is all of a sudden, we'll see. They're not as good as we thought they're going to be, or every big win is. See, they're they're coming they're coming around. It's all a process to Calipari, and that's the way it is every year. They're not a finished product until literally they hit the NCAA tournament because they're so young and they're replacing so many pieces and they're changing up what they do so much every year. And not just before the season starts, but two months in, he'll still be changing what type of system they're running on offense. I mean, he really adapts to his talent. And because of that, I don't think it's fair to ever really say this is who UK is until we get right down to tournament time. I mean, unless they've really played themselves out of that situation or it's a team where they're going undefeated for most of the year, it's kind of become that way with UK. It's like it's going to be a mixed bag throughout the regular season and we'll kind of see how they come together at the end. I still think this team is going to be a tough out. I still think they're dangerous. And I think a win like this kind of gives you a little more optimism if you're a UK fan. There's there's legit reason to think this team is dangerous in the postseason, not just we're begging and hoping they're going to improve because Calipari is our coach and this is what they do. When's the last time you've seen a team kind of part ways with a starter in the middle of the season and it ended up being like the best thing for them? I don't know that I recall anything like what we've seen with Quad A Green happening really where he was a pretty vital piece to what they, you know, who they were and I guess all parties just kind of realized this isn't isn't going to work out and they have been 10 times better with Haggins at point guard. Yeah, I don't I don't know if it's 10 times better but I do think it did make things more easy just because I, Well, they're they're much better defensively. Def, like he definitely makes better them defensively. a totally different team defensively. And I think you're just not trying to figure out the rotations anymore. Yeah. Guys aren't looking over their shoulder. You're not trying to fit as many guys into a limited pool of minutes. It's just like this guy gets a chance to get in his groove 
And so does this guy. And it's no longer trying to play the hot hand and stuff. I think Xavier. It's just weird. I, I, how many? I don't think I don't recall really seeing that much. Where I mean, I just off the top of my head, I don't have an example. But I feel like there might be another example. But it's a good point. Yeah, like who did Dockage take them. over for last year at Ohio State? I wasn't. I mean, Ohio State's had some guys that have. Yeah, but I mean, like usually when a guy transfers midseason, they're not playing. Right. Or you know they're they're struggling like they're the twelfth guy on the bench. We don't normally see a guy transfer in December that is a starter. Or I, I think the weirder thing is that we haven't seen one where the kid wasn't a problem. Yeah, like I, he wasn't I, a problem. I feel like there have been examples where you had a bad dude, yeah, or yeah, a yeah. really selfish player on your team, and I don't think anyone thinks that about Quad Green. I think Cal and his teammates liked him. It just wasn't working for anyone. Yeah, and I, I'm not saying it is a bad thing. I mean, no, I know you're not. I kind of props just, to everybody weird. involved for being like, "This isn't working. You need to go somewhere where it's going to work for you, and we need to do something different that's going to work for us." I think he's going to be really good at Washington once he becomes eligible. I do too. I, it's just a weird like situation. Like in thinking about it, I don't recall it happening, or like, and it definitely doesn't happen often where a guy that's a critical piece transfers in December and. Not, the team gets better. It's like they they just waved him. They they DFA'd him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but eh, just something to think about. Okay. Any uh, this is final thought time. Final thoughts from Rick Chad. Any final thoughts? I got nothing. I I mean we we've talked about what my final thought would have been, and it's just that AAC officials are dreadful, awful, terrible, and it continues to happen week after week after week. And it's not like a it's not like a, a UC thing. Like I think they're bad because of UC. I think they're bad in every AAC game I watch. They they don't have control of the situation. They don't have control of the coaches. They don't have control of what's going on on the floor. It's just a disaster. Well, and it benefited UC against Wichita State, but you you can't really turn a five point game into an eleven point game in one possession. Right. You can't allow it that to happen. Well, yeah, I mean, that Marshall put him in a spot that there was really nothing. No. But if you teed him up earlier, right. you, you have it's, probably it's a little a bit better control. It's a less than ideal situation to turn a two-possession game into a four- or five-possession game. Yeah, I mean, that's that's unfortunate. That's, you know, and I don't even know. I thought the technical was kind of weak. I don't know if, if you saw it. Nope. It's, Jaron made a play. The guy fouled him. Jaron kind of big-boyed him. And the guy got in his face a little bit, which I, I don't really have a problem. I thought you could have done without a technical there. Yeah, I thought you probably could have as well, and that's why Marshall got pissed and flew off the handle. I, I don't think it warranted really either of those things happening. Um, they're just bad. It, it's, And I, I do wonder if it's Curtis Shaw, who's the guy that is in charge of the officials in the American, when he was calling college games, he was confrontational. He He's the guy that... Um, I think he's the guy that kicked out the two guys at Maryland, the two former players. Remember what I'm talking about? No. Uh, Chris Corcini. Or they, they had two former players sitting courtside. And it was kind of like when Mo got kicked out. The two former players were kind of giving it to the ref a little bit. And these are like legends at Maryland. And he kicked them both out. Because, you know, he's got to be the show. And I wonder how much of it is, you know, these guys thinking, hey, we're working for Curtis. And he liked being the show. Maybe we can be the show a little bit working for this guy. Well, at the very least, guy. we can get away with being Yeah, the show because, because he's not, he, yeah, he's, 
I, I know it's been brought up plenty of times. Can we pause and think about how funny it is that Melager got kicked out of that NKU game? Like, that's, he, he called, a, he called him a dinosaur. dinosaur. But, like, not that he did anything that was too egregious, but, like, think about it'd be pretty hard for, like, you, me, any three of us to go into an <laughs> NKU game this week and get kicked out on Saturday. Like, if we made it a point, I think it'd be pretty hard to do. We could try. That's and, what I'm saying. Yeah. And I don't think we could get it done. Like, I think someone, like, you, security would come over and be like, you hey, have knowledge of the incident? Was there, I'm, I'm assuming that there was some, some sort no. of alcohol involved. Well, like, I think he had, like, a beer or two, but he was not intoxicated. And he wasn't, like, being unruly. It wasn't, like, a thing that was a buildup. He hadn't been, like, yelling at the guy the whole game or anything. It was, like, literally other fans had been yelling at him, I think. And then Mo happened to say the one thing that he had, he heard, and because he was sitting courtside that game. It's just... <laughs> a bizarre situation, an absolute wacko move by the ref. But also, I mean, just a hilarious thing for Mo to have on his resume. It would be something funny if if we sort of had a promotion to say, you know, the first guy to get kicked out gets twenty five bucks, and if, <laughs> if you can't get kicked out, that pot rolls over the next game. Because I, I do think, think you could get kicked out of an NKU game. I don't think I could. I think I mean, someone from NKU would come over and tell yeah, them. Yeah, because not they know you. Here's, and here are the rules, though: you can't leave your seat. You can't stand up. Yeah, was Mo standing up? I don't think I so. I think he was sitting down. Yeah, he was courtside though, so it's a little bit different. Okay, you can't. Whatever Mo, we have to figure to out what Mo was doing. Doing, and you have to do exactly that and try to get because you can get kicked out. I mean, if, you if go I on the floor during the game, I mean, you can get kicked out. I'm but, telling you, it'd be harder. It'd be hard to do. I do not think I could easily get kicked out of an NKU game. But if you ran on the court during the game, they're going to kick you out of the game. Yeah, but, but we're talking about getting kicked out like, right. by a ref. Being seated, not using any profanity. I don't even know that I could run on the court and get kicked out. I think they'd be like, what were you doing? And then be like, don't get, do yeah, that. like get out of like not get out of the arena, but get out of the spot. Rick being Rick. Get Rick get <laughs> off the floor. Yeah, like, I don't even know that I'd get kicked out for that. The, the thing is, he's built a reputation of, of acceptance, of tolerance, because now yes. they're just like, it's, yes, it's kind of like uh, Havoc when Shaka was at VCU. Yeah. They can't call them all. If you commit <laughs> infraction after infraction, people can't throw you out for everything you do. Uh, that's if I wasn't thrown out in high school for some of the things I said to this one official, I don't. That really is stuck with you what, a little bit there. What I'm trying to say is I'm a little bit jealous. Mo has that on his resume. Like I wish I could say I got kicked out of a random college basketball game as a fan. Father, radio host, kicked out of an NKU basketball game. Mo Egger, I tip my cap to you. That's a fitting way to end the real podcast. men of genius. That's that's about as good a way as we can end. As uh, as anything, guys. I, Jed, I, good th- job. Thank you buddy. for letting me Always pinch hit once again. Rick Boring of MusketeerReport.com. Chad Brendel of BearcatJournal.com. I'm filling in for Richard Skinner. This is the Skinny Podcast presented by Joseph Infinity of Cincinnati. <laughs>